Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Caroline Creamant from AdviceWorks joins me this evening in studio to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Sahil Suleiman from Coronation to discuss their Global Emerging Markets Fund. All that way coming your, sh your way shortly. First, a quick look at what's been making headlines. The U.S. Federal Reserve lifted interest rates by a quarter percent to two percent. This is the U.S. economy is growing faster than expected, with rapid growth creating the dollar approaches a seven-month high. The Fed signaled two more likely increases for this year. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank has announced that it will end its stimulus program by December and will possibly hike rates next year. On to some company news. Comcast and Disney have expressed interest in purchasing 21st century Fox assets. Comcast has put in a bid of $65 billion for the entertainment assets, which the Fox board agreed to sell to Walt Disney last year. Fox will have to request a waiver from Disney to begin talks with Comcast, who says that the new improved offer fully addresses the board's stated concerns with the previous bid. And AT&T won approval from the U.S. court to buy Time Warner for $85 billion, US dollars, dealing a blow to U.S. President Donald Trump's administration, which tried to block the deal, which will likely set off a wave of corporate mergers. Here's more on that. A big win for AT&T on Tuesday, a U.S. court giving it a green light for its mammoth $85 billion purchase of Time Warner. The telecom giant's win is a big loss for the U.S. Department of Justice, which filed a lawsuit last year. The government was against the deal, claiming one company shouldn't control phone, broadband, direct TV, satellite programming, and Time Warner's TV, video, and movie content. President Donald Trump has been a strong opponent of the deal, first announced in October 2016. Specifically, Trump has been intensely critical of news coverage by Time Warner, CNN. The merger is the fourth largest deal ever attempted in the global telecom media and entertainment space. For AT&T, it's about growth. While the Justice Department can still appeal, the judge, in a scathing opinion, urged the U.S. government not to seek a stay of his ruling, saying it would be, quote, manifestly unjust to do so and not likely to succeed. Time Warner shares rose more than 5% late Tuesday with the blockbuster deal moving one step closer to the finish line. Caroline Creeman from AdviceWorks joins me now. Caroline, let's pick up on, on, on the yes. AT&T story there. This is a, a giant deal, and mm -hmm. I, I can't keep on, I have going back to the AOL Time Warner, which was yes. the, the giant deal of a different era, yes. which fundamentally yeah. didn't work. In a sense, you can, you, can almost, you can see how this fits. On one side, you've got AT&T, yes. the carrier and the like. You've Correct. got Time Warner, the content. Mm -hmm. You can see them fitting together. Yes. They said that last time, but it does make some sense, perhaps. Look, I think it's a little bit different to last time. So I think the last time they, they tried something like this was really in the time when people were still watching television. Yeah, fair point. And, 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 times, and, and internet was dial-up. Exactly. <laughs> so, so really, probably this is the time where this, is, this has come. And, and you, you're going to see this increasingly where your content carriers are looking to pick up, because they're really just dumb pipes. Sure. You know, they're a utility, um, looking to pick up content because that is where the revenue pickup is. So I think the regulatory environment is, is certainly favorable to them. You know, people are concerned about the rise of Netflix and, and Amazon. Um, and, you know, this is a way to create competition with, with, those, with those players, even though they're almost not quite as big as, 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 as this deal. 
It's a fair point because, I mean, yeah. we'll touch on in a moment. Disney and Comcast won 21st Century Fox. Verizon has bought AOL yes. and, X, and old Yahoo assets yes, as well. Yes, yes. Um, so, and, and, and yes, obviously, yes. this is the old school guys trying to compete with the new school Correct. guys. Except that they they've got the content, you know they they've yeah. got the library. They've got. I mean, if we look yeah. at potential, you know, uh, Disney or however that ties up, they've got that content. Yes. Netflix is perhaps in a slightly vulnerable place here because yes. Disney can say all that lovely Disney content. Yes. Itself. Well, um, I mean, this is part of the neutrality issues that, that have been raised in the U.S. And and in a way, Donald Trump has actually been saying one thing on the one hand and doing something on the other. And on the other hand, on the one hand, he, you know, he he did away with some of the net neutrality rules that Obama had actually put yes. into place. Um, and on the other hand, he is critical of this deal. So it, it looks at these like the courts are looking more towards, you know, but you're saying net neutrality is not an issue at this point. Um, I, I presume that if it becomes an issue at some some stage where there is um, where somebody tries to like an AT&T tries to throttle content from Netflix or probably more likely is from a news channel. This is probably where the issues are going to the repercussions are going to come that the regulators will start to actually clamp down on that. But for the time being, they're letting the free market take its course. Yeah, fair point. This is a free market. Um, and, and then, of course, there's another potential one here. Sprint and T-Mobile, yes. who are number three and four yeah. in the telco yes. space, have wanted to tie up before. And, and yeah. this looks like, certainly after, after yeah. the ATT and Time Warner, they might get it past the, the DOJ, yeah. Department of Justice. Um, and that yeah. might then actually give America, because yeah. at the moment it's much like in South yes. Africa, our yes. number three, three and four are so far behind. Yeah, they're, they're, they're tiny. And even combined, uh, I think they make up about a third of, of Verizon and, and AT&T. So it's, it's quite interesting because that is actually obviously a horizontal acquisition. But Sprint has had its issues. Um, SoftBank had to step in there. Yeah. And and, um, and I think it's the first time for a very long time that they've, they've actually had a positive quarter. Um, T-Mobile, um, you know, it needs somebody, you know, to create a bit of critical mass to compete with the Verizons and the AT&Ts. And both of these players really want to go into the 5G market and they need... Investment. They need yeah. they need enough capital to actually start to invest in that. Yeah, get yeah. the capex, get the towers Correct. up, otherwise you're not yeah. everywhere. Quickly before we move on, we were chatting before we came on air. Everyone I speak to loves Disney. Do you love Disney? I love Disney. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> Both the movies I, and the share. I I love I love the movies and the share and the theme parks. I love the mouse. I love everything about it. <laughs> I think um, it's very undervalued at this point. Um, um, I think this deal will be good for them. But even if it doesn't go through, Disney's still got so much intellectual property. It's well managed. I know there are issues at this point with ESPN and the revenue mm -hmm. coming from there. But you know, then if if you're discounting ESPN, you're discounting Disney's management ability to try to turn the sports into streamable content, which they're certainly doing. So I don't think um, count this one out. I think it's it's at trading at a wonderful valuation right now. Yeah, I agree, and, and I think East, mm. I, I think ESPN will get it right. The random fact for the day is mm. that 20th Century Fox owns Star Wars One for some strange reason. George Lucas <laughs> gave it to them. Disney owns the rest, one Star Wars one. Yeah. Let's go into the Fed and the ECB. Interest yes. rate increase, yeah. no surprise. Yes. Um, perhaps the only slight surprise is that maybe they're going to be a little more aggressive mm. um, in terms of, you know, we were talking three or four increases yes. this year. It looks like four. Yeah. It looks like maybe three next year. That starts yeah. to take us to some chunky rates. 
Yes, it does, and and I think people have forgotten what those what Absolutely. those rates look yeah. like, and and I think, but this is part of what is roiling the emerging markets at this point. You know, people are scratching their heads, looking at what the implication is, and I think, look, it's not great for very indebted U.S. companies. So this time Warner deal, you know, they're taking on a lot of debt, so there's yeah. that, you know, they they have to get it right because uh, otherwise it's going to be a very, very big issue with this deal. But you know, emerging market debt denominated in dollars, you're going to see a lot of emerging market friction in the next few months. Yeah, and we also potentially, I mean, as that rate yeah. rises, and at two percent, we're still yes. historically low. But but one day it's at three, one day it's at four. What we will start to see is money moving into the debt market to get their good old-fashioned yeah. lock in four percent, you know, well, with practically no risk. Not so much. Potentially, um, but you, you know, just remember that the if increasing interest rates also increases the risk of default. So, so careful where you, you put you, the money. <laughs> you've got to be very careful where you put the yeah, money. Fair point. Correct. I mean, yeah, four percent on yeah. T-bills might not be the most thrilling thing. Yeah. Uh, the ECB uh, uh, Drachi talking last week. He manages the market brilliantly. Yes. The fact yeah. that they're moving into tapering, the fact that they might have some increases by yeah. summer of next year, but maybe not, says to me much yeah. like when the US started this part of the process three years ago mm. that Europe's coming right. I don't think so. Um, I think they're in a very different position. I wouldn't be surprised if they actually kind of stretch us out a bit longer. Um, you, you, Europe has not made the structural reforms that the Euro's had. The, the, that economic growth is looking very feeble now. You've got an issue with Italy, and also their banks don't look as stable as the US banks. Bank. They really don't. And, and, and I mean, the American banks are starting to pay record dividends. They're, they're having share buybacks. So they've got such a healthy financial system. You don't have the same thing in the EU. So I think if he is going to cut back on stimulus, he's going to do it really slowly. And if growth continues like it is, I, I wonder if he's not going to stretch it out a little bit. It's more. a fair point. I mean, Janet Yellen, we had QE1, we had yeah. QE2, we yeah. had QE Kitchen Sink, <laughs> yes, which was exactly. as much as it takes. <laughs> and maybe that's, you know, driving yeah. with all the best yeah, intention, might come to September, it, October and yeah. say, sorry, folks. Who growth can't. could derail this. I mean, a lack of growth could derail it. An Italian crisis could derail this. So don't put money in the bank. This is actually the process they're going to take. Okay, yeah. so what about trade wars? Could they derail it? Because I, I could, yeah. I'm, I'm honest. I, I'm, I know where we stand on trade yes. wars as of about two hours ago. We're apparently on the 6th of July. Trump yes. will impose trade wars in China. Yeah. China has promised to retaliate. Yes. Trump has promised that if they do retaliate, retaliate yes. he will give more trade wars. Yes. And this just ends in tears. And, and then somewhere Justin Trudeau from Canada got some stuff sucked in as well. I'm not exactly sure how. Um, look, I think there's a lot of talk at this point. Um, I'm, I, I said on the previous program, look, I, I think Trump is bright enough not to cause a complete trade war. I think it's a lot of rhetoric. Um, and he probably thinks it's the right time to shake the Chinese down when the economy is actually doing quite well, that if there is some type of knock on the economy, it can absorb it. But if you look at business confidence in, uh, figures out of the US, it is starting to have an impact on business confidence, which, of course, affects investing, which is going to have a negative impact on, on GDP growth. So there comes a point where even if you're not having an all-out trade war, you are negatively impacting your economy, and I think he's almost reaching that tipping point. So how you, do you play it at Advicebooks? Are you, are you, or are you more yeah. bottom-up? And you know what, if it's a great company, it's a great company. Look, it is a great company, it's a great company, but you also need to be aware that um, there, there are some areas that are a little bit more risky than others. And right now, I think, look, um, commodities for me are like a sitting duck for these, for these types of tariffs and things like that agriculture as well emerging markets as well so so you try to you know 
be where people are still going to be spending money. Yeah, so back to Disney, Disney because they're going to be at the movies and the trade <laughs> wars. Uh, oil, uh, yeah. Iran's saying some OPEC members are yes. going to veto the Saudi proposed yeah. supply cut. Um, oil is off the highs, yeah. but still quite high at yeah. that point. Right. Trade wars might have impacts in terms of China and, and the yes. US, but oil's looking maybe higher for longer? Um, it does look, well, look, I, I think that's probably Saudis and, and Russia will be able to get more supply out there. I think that if you look at the people who are opposing this, it's Iran, Venezuela and Iraq. These are people who, who really need those high oil yeah. prices. Um, I don't think they've got enough votes to actually derail what is very likely going to happen in the end of the week, I think, on Friday. Yeah, yeah. it's Friday. Mm. It's, it's not the issue. So I mean, yeah. we, we talk in global markets, we touch on the US, they're you know, nice, mm -hmm. good markets. I mean, that's what yes. Powell was saying last week, and we can largely concur with that. But we bring the rising rates perhaps coming through. We yeah. bring perhaps some trade wars. You mentioned yes, resources. Yeah. We bring oil. For, yes. the, for the emerging market, global markets, it's, it's not looking so pretty. We, of course, fall into so that. Exactly. And we're going to talk to our guests in a moment Correct. about more, but it's looking a little rocky out there. Yeah, and, and you didn't mention, you know, the rising political risk as well. You're seeing populist governments rise everywhere. Mexico is probably going to go that route. Brazil is probably going to go that route. You know, Erdogan will probably still stay with Turkey, but, you know, he's just made some very anti-market comments. So, unfortunately, as South Africans, and I, like I tell my clients, you know, they always say, you know, South African political risks, that people don't look at South African political risks if you're outside of the country. You look at emerging market risks. Yeah, and we're just, whatever's happening here, we're getting smacked with the emerging market and, and therefore, mm. U.S. dollar almost at seven months highs again. We Doesn't can probably see that to continue. It's, it's going, and the flip it's, of that is our currency is weakening. It's, it's going to continue because the U.S. is, I mean, is growing faster than Europe, um, and also it's still a flight to safety. Yeah. You know, people always say, look, the, the dollar shouldn't be the reserve currency of the world. But in reality, when, you know, the something hits the fan, everybody runs to, <laughs> runs yeah. to no, the dollar. We can say it shouldn't, but the truth it of the matter be, but it is, is. Yes. it's a long way. The euro is almost 20. It's a long, 20 years old. It's a long way from the euro, and it's yes. even a longer way. Those of you who are saying, screaming Bitcoin at us, Bitcoin <laughs> no. is even longer, longer. No. Or gold. <laughs> or gold. gold. Gold's never been. We're going to go for a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the Coronation Global Emerging Markets Fund. The Seahol Suleiman, don't go away. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Caroline Creeman from AdviceWorks. And joining us on the line to discuss the Coronation Global Emerging Markets Fund is co-fund manager Sahel Suleiman. Sahel, good evening. Thanks for joining us on the line. I want to delve into some of the specifics around the fund, but the one thing that really did catch me, and I'm not sure if it's fund-specific or if it's a coronation philosophy, in the how long should investors remain invested, you're very much saying, really, this is long-term, and you're saying long-term is 10 years. Oftentimes, folks are saying long-term is five years, and I'm old school. To me, 10 years really is it. Is it more the fund, or is it a coronation philosophy? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, coronations uh, philosophy is very long-term in nature, so we, we would always talk about investment periods of five years or longer. Uh, but particularly for an equity fund which exhibits high degree of volatility like an emerging markets fund, and emerging markets are significantly more volatile uh, than developed markets or global markets as a whole, uh, we believe you know, 10 years is a more reasonable time period um, as a time horizon. Uh, you know, the annual volatility of the GEM index is far in excess uh, of that of developed markets. Of course, with that comes the potential for greater return um, but you do need to be prepared to be invested for five years or longer and, and preferably 10 years or more. And, and you can see over the 
you know, the course of the last uh, ten and a half years that we've had our Emerging Markets Fund up and running, certainly the retail version that's available to South African retail investors, uh, you've had wild swings in um, in, in uh, NAV over that over that period. Uh, the, the first half of the fund's existence was very much characterized by, you know, a commodity bull market in places mm-hmm. like Brazil and South Africa and high oil prices and gold prices and platinum prices, and a lot of that is reversed over the last five years. And that's how we feel that, you know, if you really want to get the full benefit of being um, exposed to emerging markets, you should be prepared to be invested for, for longer periods of time than you would typically get for a normal equity fund, where five years can often be sufficient for, uh, for capturing alpha. Yeah, and what's important here, although you, obviously you're investing in emerging markets, you, you're, you're happy to buy companies, and I mean British American Tobacco is your big holder, your argument being that they're earning a significant amount of their earnings in emerging markets, um, therefore it's happy to be in here. You're not looking for 100% EM in, in, every, in every stock. No, but I mean, you, you make reference to what we would consider to be multinationals, which earn, you know, at a minimum of 40% or more of their revenue or profits from emerging markets, and, and BAT is an example of that. Um, you know, th- that is capped at 25% of fund, and and the underlying philosophy is really you know, people are quite happy to own a Taiwanese chip maker like uh, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Company. Uh, or a company uh, like Samsung Electronics, which makes chips which are sold to you know all all over the world, or fancy cell phones which are sold all over the world, uh, don't actually have a very large exposure to emerging markets within them. Uh, an investor who, who wants to get access to the good things that happen in emerging markets, rising wealth levels, rising financial penetration, increased consumer spending, there's no reason why philosophically they should be averse to holding a global multinational which has a very good exposure to emerging markets. But as I mentioned, uh, the, the number, the percentage of fund that can be exposed to those types of companies is capped at 25%. And then simplistically, you know, if those companies are earning, uh, let's say, half the earnings from emerging markets, uh, and you're at your absolute maximum of 25%, you, you've basically got 88 to 90% exposure to to true emerging markets over the over the cycle. Okay. You, you mentioned consumers there. The one thing that stands out is your consumer discretionary at uh, just over 28%, your consumer staples at almost 24 Half the fund focused on the consumer. Uh, this is the, the, the emerging, I imagine, middle-class growing consumer base in these emerging markets, and it is going to be stocks such as British American Tobacco and others. Yes, I mean, I think I suppose the really exciting thing about emerging markets is that the consumption levels of most things we would consider to be normal, you know, even in a country like South Africa, which is far more developed than many of the emerging market peers, is well behind uh, developed market levels. And then over and above that, a lot of the industries themselves are a lot more fragmented compared to South African equivalents. You know, we, we often refer to South Africa as being an emerging market, but we actually exhibit characteristics which are more in line with developed markets. Just by way of example, our top couple of banks, um, you know, the big four plus Investec and Capitec, probably have 98% of, of the total loan book uh, in the entire country. Our, our top food retailers, uh, you, you know the names, probably make up 60 to 70% of total food retail exposure in, in, in South Africa. Whereas if you go to emerging markets, they're probably where South Africa was you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, very much further behind the development curve. You're number one food retailer in Russia, uh, which is in the fund, has 9% market share. The number two has 8% market share. And we've seen you know, over the course of many, many years these, these businesses um, over long periods of time can compound their earnings both through organic growth and through consolidating and taking out weaker competitors. And, and that's really what we're looking for to make up the bulk of the fund. 
that if you look at the emerging market index, there's a, a lot out there that um, you know we consider to be uninvestable, uh, or at least uh, very difficult to have a very high level of conviction on the long-term earnings power. I mean, you've got chemical companies, uh, you've got materials businesses, you've got power distributors, uh, you've got banks which are operating very fragmented industries with, with um, regulators who are, are prone to um, to irrational uh, moves. Uh, you've got a large amount of commodities. So really that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to give people an exposure to, to things you can't get in South Africa because I mean, if you want a, a materials business or an oil business, you can buy Sassolia. Uh, you'll be looking for something different in emerging markets, something you can't get uh, in South Africa. Caroline, that's a good point. I mean, as South Africans, mm-hmm. we are, I mean, I take Sahil's point that we are not a classic emerging market, but most South African investors are perhaps overexposed to it just because, you know, Reg 28, our retirements yes. and the like. Um, and, and, and we've got to be perhaps careful and in, 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 in how we get that balance within a portfolio because we are notwithstanding. We could make the argument that our banks are not really emerging market. Well, I think we'd like to think we're not an emerging market, but we, we, we are, are really. <laughs> we, 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 we really are. We were stuck in that, which, which you know, brings me to my question. So, Hale, I'm, I'm curious as to why the second biggest holding in countries is actually South Africa. Um, it's ahead of India. Um, at 12 percent, we're at 17 percent. Um, why, why was that done? Did you not think that you know rather to do take take companies that aren't in South Africa as part of part of a South African fund? I think it's it's more a function of the country of listing as opposed to being true underlying exposure to the African economy. So if you look at our exposure to South Africa over the vast majority of the time since inception, uh, it's been to NASPERS. And as everyone listening will know. Uh, NASPERS today is basically worth less than the value of its 10 cents taken. You know, we've done very well out of it. Um, you know, when you buy NASPERS today, as much as you might have DSTV and a whole bunch of classified businesses throughout the rest of the world, you're ultimately buying exposures to, to 10 cents. And we feel that the discount uh, that you get on 10 cents valuation when buying NASPERS uh, is, is very attractive. Uh, 10 cents, in our view, is probably around fairly valued, maybe slightly overvalued, and, and our philosophy is to buy stocks that offer a, a substantial margin of safety. If you could buy it at a 30%, 30% discount just to the value of its uh, 10 cent stake, then NASPERS is very attractive. So, you know, historically we've actually not owned much domestic SA exposure. There's been times we've had small exposure to some of the, the food retailers and clothing retailers here, but the vast majority has been in NASPERS. And then you mentioned British American Tobacco. Um, it, it shows up as South Africa simply because we own the South African listing. It, it's not really pure South African exposure. Those two would account for the vast majority of the SA exposure you see in the fact sheet. You, during the period, you write that you, you, you pulled back some of your, your Nike exposure, or Nike as one pronounces it, added Adidas to it. Is that very much a play on, on, on valuations rather than a call on, on Adidas as, as perhaps the, the, the future winner between the two? It's very much valuation. Uh, if you look historically, if you went back uh, to 2012, 2013, we owned both of them for a, for a prolonged period of time, but Nike outperformed Adidas operationally significantly. Uh, and uh, then we sold out of Nike and we held Adidas for a little bit longer, but then you know, Adidas also reached fair value. But you know, both businesses continue to compound their earnings year after year at a very decent rate. What's interesting about the two of them is although you know, Adidas is, is number two in most markets, uh, Adidas does have a, <clears throat> a greater but we a greater margin opportunity. You know, Nike historically has earned margins well in excess of 10%, uh, mostly due to its very strong position in the U.S. market, whereas Adidas, uh, being a little bit more geographically dispersed, has earned single-digit margins. 
And over the last couple of years, Adidas has uh, been you know, cleaning up, selling off some of the non-core assets. Uh, they own the Reebok brand, uh, which doesn't make much money. They paid a lot for it back, I think, in 2005. And all of that is starting to come through now. So if you look at the, you know, the near-term valuations, you know, Nike and Adidas don't look too different from each other in terms of the one-year forward or two-year forward multiple. But if you go out three or four years, you know, Nike has potential to range, raise its margins by a couple of percent. Adidas, there's no reason why it should be earning half the margins of, uh, margins of Nike. So that multiple comes down much more rapidly. So it's very much a play on valuation. Now, we did very well out of Nike. Uh, we bought it, uh, I think, at the end of uh, 2015, uh, under $50 a share. Uh, you know, today it's trading in the mid-70s. Uh, you know, that would argue for a reduced position anyway. Uh, quickly before we, we've got about a minute or so left, you added some South Korean financial services group, not a stock I know anything about. My question is more, do you, do you concern yourself with geopolitical? Obviously, uh, uh, there was the meeting in Singapore last week, or are you going to be very much exclusively a bottom-up, and if it's a quality stock, it's a quality stock? I mean, you can't ignore geopolitics and you can't ignore macro. I suppose that the short answer is that macro has an impact on year one, year two, year three earnings. Um, but in the longer term, you tend to make money out of businesses that, that you know, increase their, their earnings year after year over a long period of time. Uh, and then that's the reason why we have some of the Korean domestic exposure. Uh, well, you know, you're never going to be protected against the nuclear attack on, on South Korea. But if you, you know, if you just look at the sheer scale, the difference in economic um, size between uh, North Korea and South Korea, you know, let's say the countries are unified tomorrow, it would be a drop in the ocean. South Korea is you know, 100 times the size of North Korea. Uh, it's a completely developed, uh, advanced economy, you know, whereas North Korea is, is, is very much you know, 1930s, 1940s levels of development. Yeah, the, the other stock I wanted to, to touch on, but we are out of time, I think, uh, Ping An Insurance, obviously a, a discovery yeah, plan. Yeah. We can, as South Africans, get some interesting little bits here and there, but my sense is it's always, apart from NASPAS and British yeah. Mercury Tobacco Caroline, it always does seem a little bit... Spotty, yeah. Yeah, yeah. spotty and small, yeah. perhaps. I think, I think you, if you buy buying Discovery now, you're not buying it for Pinghan. Although Fair I think point. in future, that might very well be the other way. It might be the 10 cents. That's the show for this week. My thanks to our guest, Caroline Creeman from AdviceWorks. So Hale Suleiman, who is co-fund manager of the Coronation Global Emerging Markets Fund. Thanks you for watching. I'll catch you again same time next week. Have a good evening.